With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, Stucker you here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back everyone to, I'm going to call it a special episode, and I know for a fact that I've called pretty much every episode for the last several episodes a special episode, because in some way, shape, or form, well, it, it, it's all kind of special. Whether it's something that Gabby created, or my editor, or just something that we're doing for a special, it's all special to me, and this one is for a different kind of reason. That is because we are going to be covering the story of Simon Bolivar. Who, honestly, I'm going to say this right here from the beginning, Gabby. I'm not sure how familiar you are from when you grew up in Trinidad for if Simon Bolivar is a big figure there. But he is huge in Latin America. Like, if everywhere that you go in the United States, you see George Washington and his statues and everything named Washington this, Washington that. Pretty much anywhere in Venezuela, in Ecuador, in Peru, in, well, I mean, not necessarily all in Peru, but like the northern parts of Peru, perhaps, like this entire section. It's Simon Bolivar. He is the liberator of South America. It, it's like one of those big stories that we'd associate with the ideas of great man history, which is both flawed and also true at the same time, because the entire story of Latin America and South America and its independence is really just one giant mess that happens because of Napoleon and also many, 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 many other socioeconomic factors, which sounds like a weird thing to say here. But speaking of things involving an economy, before we actually jump into today's episode, I just wanted to remind all of you that we are going to be leading a trip here to, uh, to Italy here this next spring, and there are still a couple early bird spots that are left. We are going to be taking up to 24 people over here to Italy, so if you would like to join us and see Rome, Florence, and all of the grand historical sites of Italy, then by all means, please do join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. And also, I should probably say on that note to go ahead and check out our coffee and other things. But really, I'm just really excited about this trip right now. That is like the key thing that I am focusing in on because I really want to do it. Well, as soon as it confirms, then we can actually launch our next trip. Correct. Which we want to be to Peru, possibly. Yes. We haven't worked out anything with them yet because we still have to finalize like the Italy trip. And once that is finalized, then they can look at, you know, Peru. Exactly. So, exactly. Which we... I think is topical for today's subject matter. Oh, it really is. Oh, extremely is. And I want to go to a lot of different places. I'm really excited to be able to cover a lot more stuff. So I feel like I should do some more Italy podcasts, like themed for different things. Like, oh, maybe some Renaissance. The Borgias. The Borgias would probably be a really fun one when talking about that stuff. The Borgias have been on the list for like I know two months, <laughs> I think. Whenever we wrote the Marian reforms, we were supposed to do the Borgias next, but then we kept getting sidetracked as we do. Because people think that, you know, most podcasts, they have their episodes planned weeks in advance. And our oh, producer yeah. actually gets on us for this because we yesterday, yesterday evening, we were in a podcast meeting and he's like, OK, so what's tomorrow's topic? I forgot. We had no clue. Yeah. Which actually this episode was James's idea due to the fact that. We, we forgot the initial no thing that we planned on doing. Like I was supposed to write something while I was in Florida and uh, nope. Nope, nope, nope. So I did then not. James helped, you know, find like the research links or whatever last night. Mm -hmm. And then you wrote it at like 4 a.m. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I might have stayed up almost all night last night before uh, Gabby you woke up. You did but I called you to bed at 7.40 yeah. a.m. But if we normally go to bed at 3 a.m., is going to bed at 7.30 really out of the question? See, this is why we need to have the work-life balance conversation. Anyway, back on track. Episode, yay. Episode, yes. We, we said our piece here. Now we need to talk about the actual story of all this. All right. So as I said, we are talking about the story of Simon Bolivar, and he is a person who represents many different things across Latin America. This is a figure that is exceptionally vital to the history, hugely important to not just like Venezuela, where he was born, 
but the entire continent of South America. He is held in reverence by some and hated by others. You could honestly compare him, like we said the whole thing for Washington. Imagine if George Washington and Napoleon had a baby. That's Simon Bolivar, if you want to say anything. He was a military leader who wanted to ignite the Flames Rebellion all across South America, and he is a person who would become the catalyst to a lot of violence and death. That is something that definitely would happen as a result of it, because you're talking about years and years and years of fighting. He is hated. He is loved. He is everything in between because, well, I mean, that's really what happens when you become a big figure for a time period. But because of that, his life is one that is complex. He is a member of the bourgeoisie as a revolutionary. He was a dictator. He was a person who tried to reform and to fix the country. He was a person who fought for freedom, along with also simultaneously turning into a little bit of an imperialist. That's it's it's one of the things that just makes him so incredibly complex. But regardless of it all, he has a singular title that sums up him as a whole or as a total, right? As a whole. That is El Libertador. He is the liberator. That is his title that would reign supreme everywhere across South America. And it's he is the person who fought for independence from Spain. So, okay. We're going to kind of need to explain a little bit of the context of this guy and exactly what happened with him. But he was born in the 1700s, the late 1700s to be specific. 1783 in Caracas, which is the capital of the, what was at the time, the Capitancy General of Venezuela. Okay, you said Caracas. And Caracas? I, it's it's Caracas, not Caracas. 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 You said Caracas. Car- Caracas? <laughs> Caracas, Venezuela. Is it just Caracas? You're, you're not supposed to say it like that. Uh, I, I think of the ship, the Carrick. Is that what it is? Like Caracas? I don't know. We've always just said Caracas, Venezuela. I don't know. Actually, that's it. Okay. I'm going to get a whole bunch okay. of angry messages so, that are going to send in for my pronunciation, I'm sure. I'm not a professional. I'm just saying that's what we, uh, we're right off the tip of Venezuela, like Trinidad, and everybody just calls it Caracas. But Trinidad Caracas. should not be referenced for pronunciation. As the pronunciation capital of the world. Oh, Gabby, so. would, would, you, would you like a bear to drink? I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Little inside joke from all of us, but one of the things that there are certain words, like just as I have a country twang that comes out on certain words when I talk, being a person who has lived the majority of my life in Kentucky, in the United States, uh, for Gabby, there are certain words that her Trini accent comes out, such as between beer, like drinking beer, and the animal, the bear. And it's, it's adorable when it happens. Anyway, back to him being born in... Venezuela. Venezuela. I'm just going to say Venezuela because <laughs> that's where I was. Okay. And he was the youngest of three sons or well, not three sons, but he was the youngest son of the wealthiest family at the time there in pretty much all of Venezuela and arguably all of South America. Like this guy was loaded from the beginning, but unfortunately he was also going to be a little bit tough. Like he was going to have the classic, um, how do I put this? You know how we watch one of those Regency stories or see, and you see like, oh, it's the person who's like the heir or heiress to a fortune, oh but then gosh. their father dies at a young Duke, age Simon? and everything is in question. Well, no, I was saying I'm Simon because like his father died and nothing was really in question. He just hated the guy. Well, yeah, there was definitely that. Yeah, <laughs> And yeah. he was super rich. He was a Duke, but he was like, everything sucks. Yep. Which so- would honestly probably be me. <laughs> <laughs> so Simone's dad died when he was only two. And custody wouldn't pass on to his mother and her father. And when this happened, he was actually raised separately from his siblings, which was the custom from the time. Why? Because they weren't raised necessarily all together individually. They would have their own like nanny or caretaker, like the one who would be individually paying attention to them. So they all had separate caretakers. Yes, basically. Oh, I like that. You got one on one care. Yeah, well, I mean. In this case, it was happening from uh, a woman by the name of Hippolyta or Hippolyta, which was his African house slave. Oh, he was wealthy, wealthy. Oh, you know, they were wealthy, wealthy. Yeah, yeah. And so Hippolyta was arguably the closest thing to an actual parent that Simon Bolivar ever had as a child, because that was the person who raised him. That was the person who did everything for him. And it would also become the person who would have to do everything for him, not just as a job, but actually just take care of him because there was no one else. Because only a few years later, in 1792, he's like, what, nine years old at this time? Eight turning nine? His mom then dies of tuberculosis. 
And then the next year, his grandfather dies, which means that the, 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 the custodians of the fortune of everything that they had, yeah, now that was going to be something that people were going to want to seize. And so Simon was then passed on to his uncle, Carlos, who Simon hated because he firmly believed for his life that his uncle was really only interested in trying to take his inheritance. Ah, uh, uncles. Anyway, on that note, why didn't his uncle just kill him? Or is it not that kind of story? I mean, it's not that kind of story. Darn. If it was, then this would be a significantly shorter podcast than <laughs> anything. Uh, yeah, it would be like the story of, what, what was it? With If we were coloring, not color, if we were covering the story of the son of Mthambe, the, uh, the, 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 the guy who killed his brother when we covered the whole things with Netflix's Queen Jinga. Oh, yeah. right, that one. Because yeah. that kid, that kid, Jinga, him. Yeah, in order to take the throne. So if that was the case, then uh, yeah, that story would be way shorter if we were covering that person's life. Moral of the story, don't trust your don't relatives. Don't be rich and trust family. It doesn't go well. That was bad advice. We gave bad advice, you guys. Don't listen to no, it. No, you can have either or. You could be poor and trust family or you could be rich and not, but don't do both because at some point, one of them is going to backstab you when it comes to like these kinds of societies and households. Valid. Like, that's that's what I would say. So did his uncle not seize his inheritance? Well, no, but he did end up sending him away because Simone had a rather, I mean, which is like the classic story of anything that you would associate with a rich boy, right? Like, that's... That, also with kids. Yeah. Who has the time? So he was often noted as being an unruly child. So he fought back against teachers, against parent figures, against literally anyone that would order him around to do anything. He ran away from home to his sister, who was his much older sister and her husband, in order to try and get them to take care of him and be his custodian. And they did try to do this, but no, it didn't happen. They weren't able to actually get this custodianship recognized. So Simon then was instead sent away in order to live with another guy whose name was also Simon. But this was Simon Rodriguez, who ran a school where Bolivar was going to be educated. Which, honestly, we're looking at this. This is like a story, if I'm going to associate it, and I know this is going to be incredibly cringy. So, so brace with me here. This is just like what would happen with, like, if you had Cinderella, but it was an isekai anime with a school. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> Why would you put me in this situation? I know, right? Because I'm looking directly at you because I want to see exactly how you would respond. To Absolute confusion. Like, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was um, that, that's what happened there. He gets sent away to the school where he's supposed to be educated and Rodriguez would become a mentor to him. He was a guy that Simone actually looked up to. He was not only a person that would be looked up to, but he was probably the catalyst behind why Simone became as much of a revolutionary as he would later. Like this is these were his formative years where everything was going to be determined for him, which it's like when you grow up on Tumblr and every political view you get comes from Tumblr and then you go to college and you're like, wow, wow, <laughs> we were some unhinged teenagers. That's for sure. That's kind of tap what happens with the Internet, to be fair, whenever you go into any kind of specific community and it becomes a um, not not gated community. That's the wrong term to use. Uh, not a hug box is way too harsh of a term. A uh, enclosed echo chamber? En echo chamber or enclosed space. Yeah. Where you just hear the same things repeated over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And in his case, this was going to be a lot of like pro-independent stuff, which would be then, I guess, kind of ironic because what would happen is that his uh, like Simon Rodriguez would end up getting arrested. He was linked to a pro-independence conspiracy and was forced into exile in 1797. So mind you what? Simon is like um, he was born in 1783. So he is four. No. Why am I 14? He is 14. He is just starting to get educated by this guy. And then at the age of 14, his mentor gets exiled because of pro-independence thought. So in other words, Simone was becoming a radical teenager. The timing on this was perfect. I know. And look how it turned out for him. I know, right? Proud of that guy. Which I should probably explain the context of that just because it is pretty important to the settings so that people understand this. Um, when we're talking about this region, Latin America, South America, all of that. This was, um, this was something that was colonized by European powers after the discovery of the New World led by Christopher Columbus. Naturally, we already have gone that time and time again. 
You have all the different states, whether it's Spain, Portugal, France, England, and the Netherlands. All of them have established varying different colonies all across the locations, uh, like many of the different ones that were competing over many aspects of the Caribbean and were constantly fighting each other in that territory over the islands. They passed those countries back and forth like a softball. What was the story that you said regarding Trinidad that happened? And you do. You do. You just don't let it hit your head because it would hurt way worse than a baseball. The Wait, really? They're way heavier. So is this like a Greenland-Iceland thing? Yes. When I first learned that as a kid, I was pissed because I got hit with a softball. I genuinely thought softballs were soft. No, no, no. Softball. So if their outer layer is slightly softer, think of it like this. It's imagine, imagine you have a bowling ball and on the out of side of the bowling ball, you have some felt cushion. It's still a bowling ball. So when it hits you going 70 miles an hour, that hurts. Well, I'm not going to play that. Oh, no. Um, Not that I was planning on it, but now I'm really not. What was I saying? Oh, right. Yeah. When Britain pulled up to um, Trinidad Trinidad and forced the Spanish governor to hand over, um, you know, the country. Yeah. They were like, oh, no, this is ours now. Give it up. Hand it over. And he was like, I bet. Peace. I'm pretty sure there's a lot more to that story, but that was the gist of it. That was the gist of it, which in many cases, when someone shows up with a fleet and demands something and you don't have a readily available, but defensive force, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens. I'm going to try that. Which island? Um, uh, What is the island in the middle of the English Channel that they have? It's the artificial one that was taken over. It's like the the microstate. It's not actually recognized as a microstate. Sealandia. Wasn't that the name? Sealandia. <laughs> called Sealandia. Yeah, it was a guy. It was like a, an abandoned what oil rig, I think it was, and like some guy took it over in like what the 1970s, 1980s, and declared it to be a country. Is he still there? Yeah, and in fact, there was at one point where a coup, like some international criminal, showed up to try and take it over, and he he ended up actually getting it back. Okay, I'm gonna write that down because we're gonna make a YouTube video on it because I want to know the story of Sealandia. <laughs> I can't even remember that was the name, but I remember it was something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's definitely Wait, a thing. Wait, how do we end up here? We keep on verging on a different stuff because we talk about islands and revolutionary forces, which means that we have no boundaries. We're just pure chaos right now. Okay, okay, go. What okay. were we talking about? Well, we were talking about the context right now of the, um, the background of colonization. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So when you had all these different powers that were coming in and taking things over, it had, they had very established systems. European elites would rule these colonies, which were largely populated by people that were either native or of mixed ancestry. And towards the end of the 18th century, revolutionary ideas started to spread all across the world. And this was birthed by a series of different things. You had first the big American war for independence. You had the French Revolution and the ideas and things that you would see from this. These would end up reaching Latin America and would lead to, well, a whole lot of trouble because now you have all these people that have been oppressed for many years that are like, yeah, you know what? I like the idea of um, freedom and not being beat by my landlord slash owner. Yeah, people, people really liked that idea. So these revolutions start to spread across the, the entire continent, but they have very mixed outcomes. The majority of them fail. But then when one would fail, another one would pop up just like, Literally 50 miles down the road, you would see something else happen. And these would be seen time and time and time again. 
And these Latin American revolutions would eventually set the stage for independence from colonial rule for the entire region. It was just going to take a while. So, okay, when we look at these societies as well, and one of the reasons as to why they became so, um, what's the word, uh, revolutionary, I guess you could say, is that they had been pretty structured and oppressed for quite a while. It's a very different structure looking at Latin and South America versus the way things that would develop in North America. Very different under the old Spanish and Portuguese, like, colonial semi-feudal system. It, it was way, way more oppressive. So colonial Latin American society would consist of the elite administration at the top of its hierarchy. This would be the governors, the top officials, all the people who were from Europe and would rule over them. Generally speaking, you actually wouldn't typically have people who were born in the Americas, even if they were 100% pure European, like put whatever racial arguments you want into this, even if they were 100% confirmed, absolute pure European. But they were not born there. They weren't born in Europe. And that was the difference. That was the difference. Well, it's so funny because, you know, an American born overseas can't be president. Kind of rude. So it's the same thing. I get it. You're, you're judging this, but I can't be president and I'm American and I'm mad about it, Steve. I'm just saying. To be fair, it wasn't just for the positions of like president or governor. This was like for any kind of top position. But we obviously drew on that for this rule. True. Which shows it's a dumb rule. <laughs> so below this more elite core were the Creoles. Now, we normally think of when we talk about stuff for like Creoles, we think like, oh, yeah, like, so they were kind of mixed already. But no, that's not what these were. The Creoles were the people of European descent who were born in the colonies. Maybe they had a little bit of mixed blood in them, but no, you could be 100% pure European, but you were born in the colonies, you were a Creole. That's what it was. I get that, actually, yeah. Yep. You need a name for him. Yeah, 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 you would have to have some kind of distinction. And then next after that would come the people who were of mixed European and indigenous, like ancestry or black ancestry, respectively, depended entirely on what you were talking about in terms of the region. And then at the bottom of them, of course, were the natives and those that were like the African slaves or, you know, the, the, these kinds of people. Both the indigenous people and the slaves would be made to work in the mines and the plantations in order to be able to enrich their colonial masters, while everyone else did pretty much every other kind of task you could imagine. But simultaneously, because of just the concentration of plantations, we're talking about Latin and South America. So big plantations, cash crops, big production for sugar, cocoa, coffee, all that, that's what makes money. So the wealthy stayed really wealthy because they were the only ones who could afford slaves. And that means that even with the people, there wasn't a, a larger, or there wasn't a larger presence of a middle class as you would see develop in other areas. And it would be this kind of disparity that would lead to a lot, a lot of problems. So it's within this very rigid, hierarchical society that the seeds of revolution begin to be sown and start to sprout, right? Revolutionary ideas start to reach Latin America from North America and Europe and all over. And every section of society looks at this and goes, hmm, revolution, independence, not being beaten by my landlord because I said no to him for raising taxes on me for the third time this year. Well, I like that idea. And so the Creoles, who were, you know, the people that were 100% pure European in this place that was a very racialized and very racial structured society, they wanted power in their own hands. They wanted to rule themselves locally. They didn't want the power to be in the hands of these Europeans who were born overseas, where the only distinction between them was that they were born overseas, and that's it. Biracial people wanted to have greater political and economic autonomy and say and representation, naturally. The indigenous people and the slaves wanted to not be slaves. That is, that, that's, a very, that's a very distinct argument that we I need to be made. I can't believe they made, well, I can believe it. I can believe, I was just about to say, I can't believe they made the indigenous people, the slaves of their, on their own land. You know, but then I was, I thought back to it. I really had to, yep. and I realized. Yep. So, yeah. And a lot of those, you have to remember, for constantly cycling out workforce was brutal. What was it? Was it 80% of all slaves that were imported from Africa, specifically, I think, went to Brazil? 
Maybe it wasn't 80, maybe it was 70%, but it was a ridiculously large percentage. The majority of slaves specifically went to Brazil and the surrounding area there because the attrition rate in that tropical environment with the backbreaking labor of production meant that the average lifespan of a slave in that time was four or five years. And that's it. So you constantly had to keep on replenishing your workforce and it was awful work. So, yeah. You could have just kept that to yourself. Nope, nope. So these people, you can definitely see from the beginning, they don't want to be slaves. They really want out of there. Yeah, that, that, that was definitely a sentiment that was shared by a lot of people. So different parts of Latin America would see varying different coalitions of these groups of people, depending on the place that you're talking about, begin to gradually come together in order to be able to fight, to gain independence, to gain some kind of autonomy, to gain some power, to take it back from their colonial masters. Brings us back to Bolivar, which is kind of the whole point, because that's the discussion of all this. So Bolivar goes and enrolls himself in an honorary militia force, and then he leaves the Americas in 1799. He is, what at that point? That means he is, he is 16 years old. He is only 16, and he arrives in Spain, and there he's going to receive more of an education and get educated as a proper European lord and as a wealthy Creole. And during his time in Spain, he actually gets banished from the imperial court because he goes and does something terrible, Gabby. Do you know what he does? What does he do? He wears diamonds without permission. Wait. Remember that whole thing with sumptuary laws and where people were not allowed to wear certain things? Yeah. Yeah, so in America, if you were wealthy enough, you could pretty much wear or do whatever you want. But when you go back to the old country, into Europe, and there's still like Spain, which is an incredibly still feudal-esque society, when we're talking about something that is still in the 1700s going into the early 1800s, it was... It was a state that administrative, administrative and social-wise had fallen way behind the other European powers by this time. Like, it was, in many sense of the words, backwards. So while he was there, though, he would do some other things, like uh, he would get engaged to Maria Teresa Rodriguez del Toro y Eleza, which he, there's, there's, there's a lot of names when it comes to things with, <laughs> with Spain. That's just kind of what would happen. But despite the fact that they got engaged pretty early on, they would still have to wait several years as individual duties that they had ended up keeping them from one another. And so it wasn't until May 1802, it is, what, three years later, and he is then 19 by this time, they are finally able to get married. I mean, getting married at 19 doesn't sound like a good call. Well, it doesn't end up well for them, but it's for a completely different reason than you would think. What? She dies, like, immediately. What? No, when I say immediately, I mean... They get married January 1802, like literally that same year, she contracts yellow fever and dies. Oh, did he take her back to the, um, to, to where he was from, to Venezuela? No, no, oh. he's just, just there, which he may have, maybe some sailors brought some back with them. I or don't said, know. Random things could happen. You Random yellow fever, yes. Yeah. But, well, was it really that? I mean, 1800s. I guess, yeah. 1800s, you never oh, know. Malaria? Oh, sorry, guys. This is completely unrelated. But malaria. malaria. No, malaria right now. There's been um, a lot of cases happening in Florida, and we were just in Florida, and I got so many mosquito bites. But like, apparently, people, there are mosquitoes with malaria out there. And so they're like spraying constant insecticides in all of the what? regions where people had malaria to kill the mosquitoes. But yeah, that's the thing. Look it up. Are I we, read that article yesterday. Are, are we not We're, vaccinated against malaria? Can you be vaccinated against malaria? I think you can, but I don't think it's been a problem in the United States. So I don't think anybody gets a malaria anything. Oh, my God. In some places we have polio coming back and in other places malaria. That that. Wow. OK. All right. Well, among all things here that I learned today, that probably yeah. is definitely one of so those. Unpleasant. Florida has seven cases, which brings the U.S. total of malaria to eight. <laughs> Wow, Which of the eight, seven are in Florida. <laughs> I never would have guessed that, Gabby. I'm sorry. Anyway, I'm sorry. I had to interrupt because we were talking about random diseases. You know the greatest irony of that? We were quite literally just down at looking at houses when we were in Florida. The county we were in. The, it, no. Yeah. The county? Yeah. Seven of the eight were in that county. Well, not seven of the eight, but I know but one there of the was cases. cases yeah. was there. Oh, my God. Sorry. I hate to break this news to you like this. You know? Literally before we got on the... 
on on the flight heading back here that we 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 stopped by and we were looking at houses because we're considering what we are potentially going to be doing in the future for moving because I am tired of recording stuff in this damn garage. Anyway, little rant on that part over uh, because otherwise I will die of heat stroke while in here. Moving back onto Bolivar and his wife who died of yellow fever. Okay, but he was, it's, your notes say it left him emotionally distraught that his wife died. Fully understand that. You barely, you barely knew the girl. Come on. No, they knew each other for three years before. Yeah, but they, they, they weren't they allowed to get married. They were seeing each other, right? They were. They just couldn't actually get married. Okay. They weren't but. able to. How are you not able to? You find a priest to go, I want to get married. Not when you're nobility. I would have still found a way. You would have still found a way. You know me. (laughs) Hey, you know, at this time, you know what eloping would have involved in that scenario? What? Hopping on a boat and escaping to the Americas. That's where they were. Yeah, but also he would be wealthy and powerful and be well known. So it wouldn't be like he could just escape and not do anything. Being wealthy and powerful sounds like a drag. In some cases, it really is. People give it a lot of like credit, but you always have your target on your back and some other horrible shit happens to you. It's just generally is better than not being wealthy in most Times period. Like Maybe time I just take wealthy without the powerful. You know, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. So, yeah, she she dies of yellow fever. And because of this, he gets incredibly depressed. He throws himself and his energies just into politics, just completely distracts himself from all of it. And he vows that he is never going to get married again. It, it's kind of funny because I got a quote here from what he would say later on in his life in 1828 that says, look the way things are. If I were not widowed. My life would have been different. I would not be the General Bolivar nor the Libertador. In other words, he would have just become a family man. But that is true, actually. So what I'm going to say now is for me to die, if I die, maybe you'll level up to something cool like president of the United States. You know, most presidents were were married, right? You can remarry. Wait, no, you can't. Actually, I just said that where everyone heard. Now I have witnesses. I don't, I don't know where this is going, Gabby. Maybe you can I'm liberate some serious someone. concerns here. <laughs> Behind every great man is, I was going to say a dead wife, but I, you should probably that cut that out. That sounds like a horribly wrong <laughs> thing to say. Are we, are we committing insurance fraud now, too, from there? Is, is that what's going to be happening? <laughs> no. So, okay. I'm okay. sorry. I'm so tired. <laughs> this is not great. It is late that we're actually recording this. This podcast, technically speaking, is supposed to, mind you, supposed to release at 3.05 a.m. Eastern, which is in seven, no. Six hours. Yes. Six no. hours, six minutes? Five hours and, and, and 11 minutes. <laughs> okay. Technically because- speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. Wife dies, throws himself into politics, and he decides that he is going to go to the place where all the crazy political stuff always happens in the world. Can you guess? Europe? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's already in Europe. What, what place is prone to political instability at many different points and just loves revolutions? France? There you go. He goes to France. Wait, why did he? What? Yeah, so he goes to Paris because you have to think at this time, this is... Um, that is somewhere you want to be if you're into revolutions. Have you seen I know. Paris? I'm, I'm going to cover that in the whole history and story behind what is going on with that because I think it would be a great one as soon as we do the whole thing for the North Korean defectors because that is, I got a good one for that. I got a lot of data. Either way, he goes to Paris because the great enlightenment thinkers of Europe, such as Voltaire, uh, Montesquieu, Rousseau, all these important, very influential figures... These were there and would be huge inspirations for his political beliefs. He also at the same time became very enamored with the ideals of the French and American Revolution. Because you have to think, this is, this is what, 1803 that this happens in? 1804? France is in the, it's like in the midst of the grand huge stages of the revolution. And that is something that we would need to cover here in the future for a full episode that's probably going to be like a three four hours hour special on its own either way he gets his ideas from this and it's in europe that he really gets more of the idea of gaining independence not just not just like rights not just autonomy not just any of this but outright independence that became his goal and his aspiration he would meet a guy by the name of alexander von humboldt who had recently spent five years in South America. And this guy would then say to Bolivar, and I quote, 
I believe that your country is ready for its independence. I actually don't know how what his accent would be like, but I'm going to put on like this old fake British one just for the sake of it. I believe that your country is ready for independence, which is actually not something that they would have been saying at that time, considering we're talking about Britain. But I cannot see the man who is to achieve it. <laughs> why the accent? Because I wanted to. And there is no reason other than that as to why I would do it. And that statement is something that would stick with him for years. When he would go down and visit Rome, sitting at the top of the Aventine Hill, he would make a vow at that point that he was not going to rest until his fatherland, which when you look at this, that would be his home country of Venezuela versus the motherland of Spain. He wanted it free. And so while in Paris, he actually witnessed the coronation of Napoleon. So we're talking about, again, That's the like cool. huge transitionary period in the revolution. And most of the, for the most thing, he was impressed with Napoleon. Here you had a guy who came from not exactly nothing, but from relatively humble standings and went on to achieve the greatest kind of power you could imagine. And he felt that Latin America needed a leader like Napoleon. I don't not mean to. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't mean to interrupt, but since Napoleon was Corsican, yes. but he was allowed to be king of France, right? Yes. Um, they were way more progressive than the current United States government. Within an autocratic government ruled by an imperial monarch. Okay, yeah, but it's like the same thing. President, king. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I should do an alternate history of when George Washington was offered the position of being king. Of what? America. That was something that they actually debated as to whether or not to do was if they wanted to establish their own monarchy um, with its own system, like a constitutional monarchy, or just go straight republic, no monarch. I'm literally so jealous of them. They just got to play a game of Civ for funsies yeah, in did. real life. Yeah, they did. <sighs> Wish that, it were me. That is not actually a, an incorrect statement looking at that. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Um, so he witnessed this coronation. He really liked the power and prestige of Napoleon, and he felt that it would need a very strong leader in Latin America. But there was a problem. Unlike the United States, he was worried that Latin America really didn't have the education, strength, and experience, the really of the experience in order to actually be able to utilize full liberty. Because it was a country that, remember when we were talking about all those socioeconomic factors before, it didn't have any of the experience for its own kind of independence, ruling in a semi-feudal state that would allow it to be a full republic. So it needed a strong leader to guide it, kind of like Napoleon, but not an imperial conqueror like Napoleon. So in 1807, Simon Bolivar then sailed back west. He would spend six months in the United States before landing in Venezuela, and he would there go and meet with many different like-minded people in order to prepare and discuss the possibility of independence from Spain. And it's from here that Simón Bolívar would end up being significantly more radical than his peers, because if they wanted autonomy, he wanted independence. Then everything goes to shit. And you know where uh, things, when it comes to politics, typically go to shit when it comes to stuff from Europe? Because we just said it. France. Yep. Yep. France and Napoleon, because if anyone is going to disturb the balance of power in Europe and from there the world, it is definitely going to be Napoleon. So in 1807, Napoleon goes and does something incredibly stupid, as he would figure out much later. Uh, he invaded Spain. 
So he invaded Spain and Venezuela then rejected French rule through the new Spanish government that was put in charge. And oh my God, that is an entire story and mess in itself. Like that is the Peninsular Wars, which I don't know if we would need to cover the story of Napoleon as part of the French Revolution or if we would just need to do the French Revolution as a whole. And it also includes Napoleon in it. But the Peninsular Wars would be some kind of massive giant chapter that would take place in that. So. After much political maneuvering and also the, the, the dissolvement of several governments, Venezuela eventually became ruled by the Supreme Junta of Caracas. Caracas? Caracas. Correct. I'm going to get it right one of these days, Gabby, I swear to God. But either way, this rejected French rule as well as the Spanish Regency, which was under the control of Napoleon's brother, which, yes, that's what he did. He put his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, on the throne. The junta then got Simon Bolivar's services as a diplomat, and Bolivar then had to travel to Britain in order to try and ask for British support in trying to gain Venezuelan independence. But Britain didn't want any part of this. And the reason why they didn't want any part of this was because the old government of Spain was still something that was valid in the idea of Britain, and they didn't want to jeopardize their relationship with Spain by giving, quote, support for independence for Venezuela, because they would assume that after the war and Napoleon gets kicked out of Spain, that Venezuela would once again come under the rule of the new Spanish government, or rather the old Spanish government that was put back in charge. They cited those relations as being more important. So with that being failed, in 1811, Simon Bolivar would then go on to create the Patriotic Society, which was an organization that was specifically meant to get Venezuela independent. And after a whole bunch of campaigning, the movement eventually would succeed. And as a result of this, and many other maneuverings that were going on in the background, Venezuela would declare independence on July 5th in 1811. Bolivar was so happy when this happened, it seemed like everything that he had worked for in his life was finally coming to fruition that he did a huge thing. He went and he freed all of the slaves in his family, and he called for the end of slavery as a whole in the entire Western Hemisphere. Which is a pretty big thing. Like, he wanted all the slaves free. He freed all of his own slaves and called for it to be, like, just a universal rule. That's what he wanted. But, of course... Things are not never exactly going to work out that easily. I was just about to say, I'm like, that sounds like the perfect ending. Yeah, yeah. You're looking that at me like, hmm, he's going to say something like, but. There's always a but. There's always a but. It's usually you, but there is always a but. It's true. It's true. Because uh, also I'm the, usually the person that says but in this scenario. But yeah, it does not work out so easily for him. The, uh, the Declaration of Independence then ended up turning into a civil war. Because, yeah, of course, that happens when factions try to rise up to take power. Except in this case, it was a war between the Republicans who advocated for independence and the Royalists who still wanted to maintain ties with Spain, right? And Bolivar would have a huge role in the military at this time. But despite the fact that the Republicans did see a number of victories, at least in the beginning, ultimately, the Royalists are the one who would actually win. And this is because it's going to sound weird. At one point, in the middle of all of this, there was a huge earthquake that shook the country and specifically wrecked the areas that were controlled by Republicans. And so you have to remember, Gabby, this is the pop a population in the early 1800s that is very deeply religious. And so they look at this and go, oh, no, God has sided against us. We needed to go with Spain. So they, they firmly went, yeah, we got wrecked by an earthquake, so God clearly wants us to be slaves of Spain. Yeah. Um, I want to judge. I want to so badly. But that is literally how I judge things. <laughs> because I'll be like, I'm going to do this really big thing and make this really big life decision. But if anything bad happens today, it's nope, a sign. Son, we're not doing anything. <laughs> I get it. So as a result of that, Republican forces ended up surrendering and Bolivar then has to flee Caracas and go into hiding in order to avoid getting arrested. Not exactly the, the best story here, what we were talking about for the liberator, but it will change at least around a little bit. So Simon Bolivar, along with the help of some of his friends, 
goes and manages to escape Venezuela into the United Provinces of New Granada, which is the um, this is the, the the territory that would end up becoming what is today modern day Colombia. And because very wealthy, because a noble with a lot of high ranking contacts, Bolivar does manage to secure a position as the commander of a 70 man garrison in this small little town. And at the time, New Granada was in an it was an ally in order to fight Spain for independence. So Bolivar goes and manages to secure permission to go and launch an invasion of his own into Venezuela, which he just goes and does in 1813. His army just sweeps through the countryside. There's seemingly no way that anyone is able to actually stop him. And with every victory that he obtains, he just ends up picking up more and more people that end up following him. And eventually, they take Caracas in like six months. That's it. Bolivar gets named as dictator of the Second Republic of Venezuela, you know, the position that's going to try and maintain some degree of control while they sort out what exactly they're going to do with the government. And it's awesome. But, (laughs) as I always have to say, Venezuela wasn't completely unified. And at this point, it was terribly, horribly financially devastated. Most of the people of color there, all the varying different mixed race people, and then the, the, the African and native population, they were still disenfranchised. They received basically no rights from this new government, and so they refused to support it. So over the course of this entire time, Bolivar would continuously face insurrections all over in his home country while simultaneously being attacked from multiple directions by others. Not great. And then someone tries to go and assassinate him. Which fails, which otherwise we'd be ending the podcast right here. But after he manages to survive an assassination attempt in Jamaica, Simone Bolivar then goes and travels to Haiti where he actually meets the country's president. Um, it's the, uh, the, the guy we, cover, uh, we covered here before. It's Alexandre uh, Petion, or Petion? Petion, Petion, Petion. It's the kind of French name, and I know I'm going to mess up it, but these two end up actually striking up a friendship. It, it works out pretty well for him, and Petion would agree to help Bolivar with both financial aid and also supplies if Bolivar would do one teensy little thing for him free all enslaved people in Venezuela, which he agreed. That's something that he wanted to do. Of course, he was going to do it, but that was a very tall order that had to be completed. So he sails back to Jamaica. He meets with the Republican leaders and begins to formulate a plan. And then in 1816, they returned to Venezuela with an army and started to win some victories. But then they get defeated. I'm saying a lot of buts in this. They get defeated. They're scattered. And in July, he was then forced to return to Haiti. Other Republican troops in Venezuela would become scattered too, and all of these were waiting for him to return and take charge again. So Petian, his friend, then goes and agrees, all right, buddy, I'm going to help you again. So he gives him more money, more supplies, more men, and once again, he goes back to Venezuela. You were going to say? You're you're saying Petian? Petian? I, this is why I looked at you when I said this, but I was like, uh, Petian, 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 Petian. The accent over the E. How do we say my name? How do you pronounce that E? Gabby? No, no, and the, my last name, my maiden name. It's, it's silent. It, Rose, A. Anyway, like Rose, it, it doesn't matter. Rose, it's not. Oh, a, if you actually say it more with the. Oh, my God. Okay, so that means that when I'm saying his name, it's. It'll be more similar to Alexandre Petion. 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 Honestly, I kind of like that a little bit more than what I was saying in the first place. So I will. Petion. 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 I looked up and I'm like, what is he saying? It sounds, it sounds like a little boy who's going to be begging on the side of the street. Oh, it's little Petion. Come here to ask for some bread. <laughs> like, it, it sounds like something that I would have seen in the Christmas Carol or something like that. But no, no, I'm just wrong. Either way, he gets more men. He gets more supplies. He gets more money. And he goes back. And then upon arrival, he issues a call for the new Third Republic of Venezuela to be created. And the Republican military forces unite under him. And they start to fight, but not just on the outside. They also start to fight with each other because now you have different groups in it that are fighting for power and prestige and position within the government and the military. So after forcing the royalists to withdraw, this then turned into a power struggle in the upper echelons of the Republican power base 
which saw Bolivar have to turn around and suppress a rebellion within his own government. He had to fight his own people. And it wasn't until Bolivar made an example out of General Manuel Piar by executing him in October of 1817 that the other guys were like, ah, ha, 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 okay, well, we're, um, we're not going to we're not going to do anything. We, pr- we promise we're okay. He would, at least from this, manage to reconcile with a number of other Republican enemies, and he would end up having a string of military successes against the Royalists. So it would work out to him or for him for, to a degree. Although Venezuela was not fully under Republican control, he would still declare that he was the supreme leader of the Third Republic. So it's been like what? Five years? No, eight. It's been eight years. And there's already been three Venezuelan republics at this point. So, 1819, Venezuela is not in a good position. It is devastated. The cities are in ruins. The royalists and patriots are still fighting all over the countryside, wherever it is that they meet. And in all of this, Bolivar finds himself pinned against the Andes Mountains in western Venezuela. He realizes that as he is doing this, that he is only around 300 miles away from the vice regal capital of Bogota, which there was basically no forces there. It was almost completely undefended. If they could manage to capture this, then not only was it going to destroy the Spanish power base there in northern South America, but it would also allow him to seize the treasury of the Spaniards that were there. The only problem is that... um, This was a huge amount of distance, 300 miles, and on top of that, it was filled with flooded plains, uh, it was filled with swamps, rivers, and also mountains, like the Andes. The Andes, the snow-capped Andes, are really, really tough to actually get across, and it's not going to be easy. So he does it. He, He pulls a Carthage and does this crap. In May of 1819, he begins the crossing with some 2,400 men, and they managed to cross the Andes at the frigid Paramo de Pispa Pass on July 6, 1819. And they finally reached the New Granadan village of Solcha with around, what, 400 of his men having died. So he has 2,000 at this point, which means that in just marching there in the first place, he suffered a 20% casualty rate. Yeah, not good. But 20%? 20%, which is bad for a battle, mind you. And that was and just that marching was just, there. That was walking there. Yeah. Yeah, no, not good. But despite his losses, he's still a popular leader and he has his army exactly where he needs it. And he has the element of surprise. That's the big point. His enemies assumed that no one would ever be so insane to cross the Alps. Oh, I mean the Andes. Yeah, because again, he literally pulled a Carthage here. He pulled a Hannibal and just went yoink, went over and completely took him by surprise. So he quickly manages to recruit a bunch of new soldiers because here you have Simon Bolivar, the great leader of Venezuela that has come down. Of course, I'm going to join the army and fight. And a bunch of new soldiers from the countryside start signing up to fight with him as you have a population there that is really eager to get independence. And they all set out for Bogota. There is only one army between him and his objective. And then on August 7th, 1819, he would completely surprise them. And the Spanish general, Jose Maria Barrio, on the banks of the Boyaca River. This battle was a massive triumph, and it was so completely lopsided. We're talking Bolivar lost around 13 guys, uh, like 13 were outright killed, 50 casualties as in like wounded, but you know, they're still able to recover. Whereas 200 royalists get killed along with 1,600, like 1,600 of them get captured. Wow. It was a huge victory. Which means that with now the entire army captured and no one to retreat back to the city, he's able to march into it completely unopposed. There's no one there. And so with the defeat of Borreo's army, Bolivar now held all of New Granada. The fact is that the treasury was there, which meant that he captured all of the funds, all of the weapons, and he had everything that he would need in order to fund a bigger, grander army and state. Did he have volunteers? Yeah, no, people started to flock to his banner all over the place. Recruits started to pop up. They were eager to join in. Just like for freedom, right? Oh, yeah. Or oh, for yeah. adventure or I for wonder, treasure or for anything. You said that they made um, all of the like, you know, imported slaves and indigenous people be slaves. How Were they outnumbered? Like they'd have to be outnumbered, right? Oh, yeah, no, they're definitely outnumbered. 
awesome. They outright are. But the difference is a lot of those people are so disenfranchised to the point that they wouldn't have even the resources to fight. Like you could get someone who can make a club or a spear or do something along those lines, but they don't have the financial or or industrial capability of getting a lot of stuff for for guns or weapons or other things like yeah, that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's going to be way more difficult if they if they wanted to. But with all of these captured funds and weapons and everything else that he has, he can start making an army. And so it was only a matter of time before the remaining Spanish forces in New Granada and Venezuela were just caught, defeated, and removed. So on June 24th, 1821, Bolivar manages to crush the last major royalist revolt or force in Venezuela at the decisive battle of Car or at Carabobo. And then he immediately afterwards, and perhaps a little bit too soon, declares the birth of a new republic, Gran Colombia, something that was going to include the lands of Venezuela, New Granada, and Ecuador. He was named the president, and Francisco de Pala Santander was named as vice president. Northern South America was liberated and united into one massive super country. And honestly, it's really cool. When you go back and you look at any of the globes that were made during this time and you see Gran Colombia, because it's listed on there, this was a country that, spoiler alert, it only lasted for a few years, but there was genuine thought in America and other places that this was going to be the new superpower of Latin America. That if you had the United States in the north, you're going to have Gran Colombia in the south. And that was going to be the two great powers of the Western Hemisphere. Ultimately, though, things are going to be way more complicated because Simon Bolivar's struggles and desires for uniting all these different peoples would lead to a issue with another guy who had a similar kind of dream, Jose de San Martin. This is the guy who had managed to liberate Chile and Peru from Spanish control and fearing that de San Martin would, would then go and secure Ecuador for Peru because they were trying to consolidate their territory for as much as they could. Gran Colombia then said, okay, Bolivar, go get it. So he did. Bolivar goes down there. He initially has some success, but he's not able to really land the decisive blow. So his close friend, a guy by the name of General Antonio Jose de Sucre, he goes and commands a separate army and manages to achieve victory. He decisively defeated a royalist army, which opened the way for Bolivar to sway the population of what was called the Free Province of Guayaquil, which was at the time a kind of independent state, to join Gran Colombia. So along with the recent merging of Panama into Gran Colombia, that meant that joining Gran Colombia seemed like the significantly better choice, and it was huge. Unfortunately, I guess for the other guy, since they weren't actually fighting each other, they were just racing to see who could get there first. De San Martin was disappointed and he ends up going back home and is so frustrated by it that he quits his post and he leaves Ecuador to just be annexed by Gran Colombia then in 1822. So yeah, they would get even bigger. Fast forward another year, 1823, the Peruvian Congress, which at this point is beleaguered, they are overwhelmed, they are tired because post-revolution, they're tearing themselves apart, they're racked with internal strife. They asked Bolivar to come down and help resolve the crisis. Peru was being torn apart in four different Republican factions, as well as the Royalists, in one massive civil war. In 1824, the Royalists would actually go and take Lima, and the Peruvian Congress, then named Bolivar as dictator of Peru, gave him all the powers that he could possibly want just to get him to come down and try to fix this whole mess. So you're talking about Gran Colombia that at this point now had the opportunity, potentially, to annex Peru itself. So it wasn't just going to be a northern superpower in Latin America or South America. It was going to be half of South of America would have at this point belonged to Gran Colombia. It would have been that grander Colombia, I guess you could say. There's a lot of puns that I want to make here at that point, but I'm not sure exactly if that's exactly a good point. Either way, this is the point of what is happening. And after he transfers command to Sucre, who defeats the royalists at the Battle of Ayacucho on December 9th, Bolivar and Sucre would then lay siege to the last remaining royalist outpost, the Fortress of Callao, or Cayo, or Callao. He, he lays siege to this place, right? And it resists all the way until January 1826, but with the fall of that, they have succeeded. And on August 6th, the Congress of Upper Peru would create the nation of Bolivia 
specifically naming it after Bolivar and confirming him as president. Bolivar had driven out, at this point, the Spanish from northern and western South America. He now ruled over the, what is today the nations of Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, and Panama. His goal was that he ultimately wanted to unite all of them. These right now, he was the president of all of these separate kind of federal states. But even if they were one republic, it was a very loosely federated system. He wanted to unite it all. Like the United States, but yes. in South America. But it wasn't going to happen. Santander, his vice president, had angered Bolivar by refusing to send troops. He was a guy who was now, at that point, consolidating more of his power base back home. He just didn't want to risk sending any more of the supplies to actually help Bolivar when he was fighting in Ecuador and Peru. And so Bolivar goes back and he ends up dismissing him, like when he goes back to Gran Colombia. By then, didn't matter though. Didn't matter that some of the powers that had been supporting him were starting to weaken. The Republic was just overall falling apart. Regional leaders who, while the Grand Presidente, the Libertador, was away, well, they started to fight amongst themselves. They were consolidating more of their territory. They wanted more of their own power in Bolivar's presence. And he increasingly had to take more and more drastic draconian measures in order to try and stop them. In Venezuela, you had a guy called Jose Antonio Paez, who was a big hero of the independence, who was threatening to just outright secede. In Colombia, you had Santander, who still had his followers who felt that he was the guy who actually should have been in charge of Colombia. In Ecuador, there was another guy called Juan Jose Flores, who was trying to take it away and establish his own state there. And so, as I said, Bolivar was forced to just seize power and lay down autocratic measures and turn into a dictator to try and control the republic. The nations were simply just too divided amongst his supporters and his detractors. And in the streets, people were fighting each other and burning effigies of him as a tyrant. A civil war was constantly on the back burner. It was constantly a threat. So his enemies would try to assassinate him on September 25th, 1828, and they would nearly manage to succeed, but he was saved at the last second by his lover. Which, oh, I should have mentioned that here in the first place here from before. He never got married, but he would have a number of lovers. So I should have specified that significantly earlier. So his life was saved, at least temporarily, but not for long. As the Republic of Gran Colombia just gradually fell apart about, around him, his health would deteriorate and he would become more depressed. He suffered from tuberculosis for years, and this became worse and worse and worse. On April of 1830, Bolivar was disillusioned with all of it and pretty much gave up. He was ill, he was bitter, and he just didn't feel that he was going to be able to do it anymore. So he set aside the presidency and decided that he was going to go off into exile in Europe. But he would never make it. Even as he left, his successors would continuously fight over his empire, and his allies would try to get him back in power, but it wouldn't work. As he and his entourage slowly started to move their way towards the coast, he still wanted South America to be united. But it wouldn't happen because he would die on the way. He would finally succumb to tuberculosis on December 17th, 1830, never having made it into exile. Didn't his mom also die from tuberculosis? Yep. Tuberculosis was quite literally one of the most common killers in all of ancient history. Like, I think we covered it before as the White Death. It was, um, I know we made short videos on it, how it was still termed to be the Good Death. Like, tuberculosis was a good and noble way to die, because when you contracted tuberculosis, it wasn't an immediate thing that would kill you. You would have it for, you know, potentially years at a time, which meant that you had time to get your affairs in order before you passed. I mean, I had it, and I got better. Because of a year's worth of antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. It's Literally. a pain in the ass. They show up at your house, the literal health center. They send a nurse every single day. To make sure you took those horse pills, which were crushed in applesauce, right? And then one of the pills was red, so it makes your tears red, your sweat red, your urine red. Ugh. It's, it's a fun time. I don't recommend getting tuberculosis. It no. is not a noble way to die. If there is anything that we can say in history, it's like, hey, guys, don't catch tuberculosis. That's the message from the History of Everything podcast today. Don't do that. <laughs> also, maybe um, 
don't uh oh. You right. okay? I just dropped my phone. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so tired. You're fine. We're ending things here right now because it really is the end of the story. Simone Bolivar is dead and he has this huge legacy that to this day still lasts, right? Like we can't really understate just how important he was to Northern and Western South America. And although the eventual independence of Spain's new world colonies would be inevitable, like it would happen, it would take a person like Simon Bolivar to really make it happen as quickly and as powerfully as he did. He was arguably the best general in South America and probably the best one that historically in the region has ever been produced. Really, to this day, he is still a person that is cited, whether not just in streets or not in statues, though there are plenty of those, but specifically within governments. Like what? Within Venezuela's government, they oftentimes still reference back to Simon Bolivar. It's a common thing that occurs at this time. It is thanks to him that a lot of these states would achieve independence, but also he was not strong enough and able to establish a solid, stable state that was not able to fall apart. The fact is, he knew that if it did fall apart, that the smaller, weaker republics that would be able to form from the ashes of the Spanish colonial system would be weak, and that these were states that would always be at a disadvantage because they were incapable of working together. And to be honest, when we, we look at what things happened over the course of the 19th century going into the 20th century, really that is true. In many cases, Latin America over the years has uh, been a place that it's always had its problems, but it's still a grand history, and there was always this question of what if. What if Grand Colombia had succeeded? What if Bolivar had managed to unite all of the nations and actually hold them together into one large, powerful, super South American state instead of the more bickering republics that you see now? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. It's an interesting what if, but that is the end of today's episode. I think that we are good here. I think that we have suffered long enough in this garage. And I know that at this point, Gabby, you are tired. So with that, we are going to end it here. And everyone, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to check us out on Patreon. Also check out our Trova trip where we're going to be going out to Italy here this spring. And also make sure to check out the coffee down in the description below. If you do come and buy our coffee and you buy the bundle, make sure that you came specifically and say that you came from Stakuyi's page or the History of Everything page. Put it on there so that we know since we're having a competition with the Aiden Mathis and the Lore Lodge. I appreciate all of you. Hope you have a good rest of your day and goodbye, everyone. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.